good evening and welcome to Chat with the Designers, your live online interactive bi-weekly magazine for hams, homebrewers, and experimenters around the fruited plains of the world. This is your host, George N2APB, along with co-host Joe N2CX, and together we will be leading discussion here for about the next hour or so in the topic of homebrewing and ham radio topics, um, do-it-yourself type of projects, discussing technology and uh, tips and techniques that uh, that we enjoy dealing and, and often deal with on the bench and the, with our soldering irons and in our operating practice with uh, with our radios and such. The program is a bit of a uh, it's a it's a touch above a general gab session, and it's a touch below an in-depth design review with super duper math and all that sort of stuff. So we like to position ourselves right in a sweet spot in between and uh, talk about topics that are frankly of interest to Joe and me and some others as uh, as we go through projects on a regular basis here on our bench, uh, design and experiment with different circuits, encounter different projects uh, or different products out in the um, in the marketplace and uh, we'd like to bring that discussion here so for everybody that's joined us here this evening we welcome you with that same interest same too for the podcasters we have a large and uh, growing uh, listening audience that uh, listens in non-real time at least not not real time for us it's it's real time for them but um, they listen to the mp3 recordings that we keep on our um, our home page which is www.cwtd.org. That's chatwiththedesigners.org is our homepage. And uh, if you go there, you'll see a link to our current whiteboard today. Every uh, every session we have a whiteboard, which is a web page full of chock full of information that we essentially talk about and discuss and go down the page and prepared information that helps guide some of the discussion and adds to the Dimension of enjoyability, we think, we hope, at least uh, for ourselves who are doing this, for the information that is being discussed during the uh, during the show. So, um, without any further ado, let's let's overview the topic here for t- tonight, uh, tonight's show, which happens to be May 21, 2013, issue of uh, Chat with the Designers. It's, it's actually episode episode number uh, 54, I think, and. Um, this time we are talking about audio in the ham shack and uh, talking about devices and optimizations for input, audio output, audio test, and everything kind of in between. Um, as a second uh, quick topic toward the end of the program, we'll give an update on the ham station mesh network that we've been designing with the Arduino and with the XB controllers. And this time we're, we're going to be, uh, Frank is actually going to be sharing some of his uh, recent upgrade experience uh, getting to the Series 2 XB modules. And then lastly, before we break at the end of the show, we're going to talk about the cool product of the month. Actually, we have two <laughs> two episodes per month, so there are two cool products of the month. But the cool product this time is the Gabotronic X-Lab Portable. And if you've had a chance to kind of uh, either see it beforehand or while taking a peek at the whiteboard uh, for tonight's show, you'll see some pictures and specifications and commentary and so on. That is one nifty little device. So we'll get the chance to kind of review that and maybe some of the plans that we have uh, um, going forward with that. Who knows? We'll see. So, um, audio in the ham shack. The topic for tonight's, uh, uh, the main topic for tonight's presentation is audio is a common denominator. Another common denominator that we all have and deal with in ham radio. Um, in effect, we're using it right now, although this isn't ham radio per se. Um, I'm using my ham microphone 
and um, uh, some of my ham audio processing uh, as I speak here on TeamSpeak. But uh, we deal with audio when we're in phone operation. Uh, we deal with audio when we're on the repeaters. We deal with audio when we're doing digital mode and sending audio signals into the input of the rig for modulation. We're dealing with audio on the output, of course, for speakers. And there sometimes can be some really special processing of the of the speakers um, that happens on the audio output to to enhance the operation of you in the ham radio to and in, in, to make it more intelligible, uh, make the received signal be easier to uh, be understood and clearer, crisper. And these are the dimensions that are you know we all deal with these things and, and kind of like yeah on you know we know all about this go on more so. But typically here in our program what we do is we peel back at least one layer. And we try to understand and try to uh, figure out what it is that makes the audio sound clearer and crisper and better. Why is a good studio mic a really good um, accessory to have for some of the older rigs that don't have the as much of the, the newer processing built into the rigs that we've got today. But um, studio mics, as opposed to communications mics, often have an opportunity to really enhance the communications uh, experience on the receive side if you're using a nice microphone. And similarly, if you've got some processing of the <clears throat> audio on the output of your rig, you know, your receive experience can be much better too. So these are the things that we wanted to be exploring this time. I personally am currently focusing on some of the audio and, and considering some audio processing that Yuha and I are putting into the design of our SDRQ and the audio processing that would go in for the microphone as well as the output um, is uh, we, there's there's some tremendous opportunity in, um, in our rigs, be they reprogrammable or not. And um, I got intrigued by frequency response, channel bandwidth, what's the width of the intelligence uh, bandwidth being transmitted, why are studio mics better than communications mics usually, what's the difference between uh, condenser mics and electret mics and dynamic mics, and what are, what's the relative cost, what are some of the good devices out there to buy. Um, what are some of the really interesting uh, audio processing accessories that we can add to our um, to our microphone input specifically? Um, I'm uh, I've uh, been interested in AM uh, mode for some time, and now I'm coming to the point of of trying to boost my audio quality to be as or nearly as good as some of the other AMers that I hear on the uh, in the AM portions of uh, 40 meters and 80 meters and uh, or 75 meters and um, figuring out why their their audio sounds so much better. This microphone I'm using right here, as a matter of fact, is uh, I know because I listen to the uh, recording, of course, um, but it sounds kind of high pitched. Uh, there, there's a lot of treble. There's not as much bass in it. And uh, uh, in the in the near future, maybe we'll get a little bit more bass into my voice. Uh, right here on TeamSpeak by the same techniques that some people do use for enhancing their audio on the ham radio itself and the AM bands. Uh, EQ, equalization, balancing out the frequency energy, the energy of the frequency spectrum that you're, uh, that you're speaking in, um, bass response and treble response adjustments uh, is a good example. Um, compression, um, we all have heard it. We know probably could, we could spot it when we hear it on the air. What's going on there? And you know, yeah, maybe there's one chip that does it, but what, what's the technical or the physics of that particular process? We hope to cover these things tonight, at least at that one level deep onion layer, as I'm describing. We're not going to go into math. We're not going to go into 
uh, in-depth circuit descriptions and such. Uh, maybe that'll come another time, but it's going to be certainly beyond the uh, uh, the chit-chat session of, uh, you know, gee, your audio sounds good. Oh, it sounds really good here. I'm using an XYZ box. Oh, okay, fine weather here on this side. So we get to that next level deep as far as understanding what's cooking in the ham radio and the audio of our, of our rigs. Uh, Joe, can you kind of augment that and maybe kind of kick us off here with uh, microphones? Certainly, George. Yeah, um, many in the QRP community don't get um, terribly wrapped up with uh, voice modes, <clears throat> uh, yours truly included. That's personal preference. But um, certainly if you improve your audio, um, it can give uh, even a, a low-powered signal some more punch. People who buy the uh, FT817, for example, often buy improved microphones for the rig and um, audio processing uh, boards, mods to put into the uh, 817 to improve their audio, <clears throat> to give their low-powered signal a little punch. Um, as far as the types of microphones concerned, George uh, mentioned several types. first type we'll talk about is the uh, condenser microphone, which actually consists of two, uh, it's a condenser or a capacitor. It consists of two, uh, two metal plates, one of which is fixed and the other is movable. And as voice energy, sound energy um, enters the microphone, it, it moves one plate closer to and farther away from uh, the other plate. And there's a DC voltage impressed on there. The net effect is that uh, it generates an AC signal by changing the capacitance. And they can be very, very sensitive. They're, they're good mics. They can have a, a very, very high frequency, re frequency response. Um, and the, the general type of... Uh, Condenser mic is generally used in studios because uh, while it's very sensitive and it's uh, very um, has a, a broad uh, frequency response, they tend to be a little bit fragile. So that if they're subjected to loud noises, they can be damaged. A uh, a variation on that theme is the so-called uh, electret electret microphone, which uh, has a um, typical condenser um, microphone. Internal structure, one movable plate, which moves with uh, the voice and uh, one fixed plate. But it, um, it has a different wrinkle in that uh, it doesn't require an external DC bias. It has an internal device called an electret, which is almost the ele electrical analog of a magnet, permanent magnet. It's a, um, it's a, a wax or some other, gadget, uh, some other material like wax. But it's had an electrical charge imposed on it and allowed to go from a to solidify from a, a molten state and it tends to hold that charge uh, in the material to provide a, a DC bias for the uh, for the electric mic they can be very very inexpensive and they're they're not uh, not so rugged or that is they're much more rugged than the ordinary condenser mic and uh, fairly commonly used as uh, low-end microphones another type of microphone is a dynamic mic which uh, is kind of the magnetic analog of the uh, condenser mic. It has a moving coil in it or a moving ferromagnetic uh, um, 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 core uh, around the coil that moves in relation to uh, uh, sound impressed on it and uh, produces an electric, uh, electric output voltage. They don't require a condenser mic because they have a, a permanent magnet in there. And they can be very, very good quality, very, very high quality. Um, we have a number of links for... Um, um, or number of references for the mics. Some of the uh, some of the popular ones are made by a company called Shure. Yet another uh, is uh, Sennheiser, and uh, there's some typical model numbers listed in the uh, uh, on the on the whiteboard, along with some links. 
And uh, yet another one that's, that's very, very popular, the one we do show is a Shure SM58, which uh, if you're looking at the whiteboard, you can see it's the typical sort of thing you, you would expect a, a performer to hold in their hand. Uh, very common also for hams to use. Uh, an extremely popular mic that has been around forever and ever since the 30s is the Aesthetic D104, which is a dan- dynamic microphone. We have a picture. I'm sorry, that's a crystal microphone. Changed, uh, changed types of uh, things here. It's a crystal microphone, which, which has a uh, piezoelectric salt, Rochelle salt crystal, which uh, generates an electric voltage when the salt is stressed and is stressed by having a, uh, a diaphragm attached to it that, that will pick up sounds, a stressed crystal, to produce a, a, an output voltage. They're fairly rugged uh, and relatively inexpensive. And uh, the prototype, the prototypical one that uh, many, many people use is the Aesthetic D104. It's the uh, silver lollipop. If you look at the picture, you can understand that uh, that is uh, where it got that name. Um, some of the others, uh, a very good microphone um, in the in the ham generation and also in commercial use um, are some of the Heil microphones, H-E-I-L. They are um, uh, dynamic uh, microphones, uh, very good quality and uh, uh, professional grade. You know, hams use them when, when they want something really good. Um, they have handheld mics as well as uh, a combined headset and um, lollipop mics uh, in front of them on an arm. Um, the Heil, we have a picture of the Heil Micro Single, which is a single earphone, and the lollipop mic coming out from it. Um, a very high-quality microphone. The, the specs are uh, three dB points on the audio spectrum are uh, 100 hertz to low end and 12 kilohertz on the high end. Uh, very sensitive. They have a 600 ohm output. And it has controls on it for uh, mic cane, the uh, uh, headphone, and uh, a box, which uh, which made very, very useful. If you've ever gone to Dayton, Ohio always has a, a big uh, exhibit there where they're showing off their products. They let people try them, and they have videos and uh, some hands-on. Very, very well attended. George, you want to interject something? Indeed, Joe. Good coverage of all the material there. Um, Heil, I always enjoy going to the Heil uh, um, booth there at Dayton and kind of the drool at all of the equipment that I probably never uh, would be able to afford. Um, but uh, th- that is, it does kind of, at least in my mind, represent the, the kind of the quintessential um, reaches that we as hams might want to put into our audio signals. And there's no doubt when you do use better equipment or uh, uh, your experience is going to be better, more comfortable, better sounding and, and whatnot. Good question that we have to ask ourselves all the time. And to use a term that you use, Joe, is, uh, you know, when is good enough? When is it good enough? And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of nice to see these, these, uh, this equipment. And as, as I was saying, understanding why, um, why it works. So for example, the HM12, or at least, oh gosh, I could read the some of the specs there. At least some of the uh, the mics in the H uh, in the Heil lineup um, have pretty unique um, baffling and cardioid uh, directional response um, that points toward the speaker and not toward the um, um, not all the way around in a uniform manner. Such that if you've got a fan that's going on in the in your rig and you're you're talking in your microphone as as you might be like right now uh, or as you and I are probably, you know that the mic is not necessarily going to pick up the fan noise coming from that side of the mic versus your side of the mic where you're speaking. So it's extra little touches like that. Different than, uh, oh gosh, when I took... A small interjection, uh, George. Another advantage of something like that is if you're operating Vox with your rig and you have a null facing away from you, your rig doesn't key up from uh, from the uh, uh, speaker. Oh, excellent point. That's absolutely true. 
So that helps out a lot too. And you can do these kinds of things. Um, you know, you can make modifications to your existing microphone or just kind of shield yourself away from, from that other noise. But the, the better quality of equipment that you use, sometimes you can take advantage of those, uh, the, those features. And, um, uh, the Heil comes in different forms, as you were saying, as far as the headset. Joe, are you using a headset right now? Not this, not the Heil, I know, but are you using a headset? Negative. I'm using the uh, speakers of my computer. Oh, okay, good. It sounds really good. And uh, I know that at one time you were using uh, the uh, the headset with the boom mic um, hanging out in front of your mouth. Same, too. I, I, I did that. I had a microphone headset that... Um, was used for, oh, I don't know, I, I bought one of those uh, language learning courses. I forgot the name of it at the moment, but you get a nice USB microphone and headset. And it sounds really good uh, during most of the uh, usage, but when I used it here on TeamSpeak, for example, it just had way too much bass. So that was an excellent example of, you know, how microphones really have a tailored response. And I think that's that's a that's the section we're going to kind of get into in a moment. That uh, and, and if there's any kind of takeaways that, you know, through these ramblings that you might want to uh, have is that, you know, all mics are not the same, of course, uh, based on the technology being used. I happen to use the dynamic. I, I, I play around with a guitar and, and re- like a mini recording studio with some music and such down here. And I use a dynamic microphone. Uh, I actually use that Shure 50, 58. I'd have to dial up a little bit. The, um, <laughs> shucks. The... Uh, there it SM is. The S- yeah, the SM58. I use that one um, down here, and uh, it, it, it kind of works really well, as as they advertise or as it's described there. The, they take abuse pretty well, and a lot of uh, musicians use that kind on stage because it can suffer a lot of uh, damage without suffering, uh, without this quality suffering. Just above that is the picture of the Electret microphone that, that Joe mentioned, the Electrets. Those are some of the little microphones you can get for what, Joe, uh, 50 cents from, you know, a grab bag um, from all electronics or from Radio Shack when they used to have these kinds of things. They're pretty inexpensive and you can put those onto um, some of your projects and the project boards and uh, it works pretty well as a sound uh, as a sound capturing device and if you have the right kind of um, housing for it, I mean, it might even be a, a good microphone. The, I used uh, here on on chat with the designers. I used a, a real inexpensive um, PC mic. You you probably have all seen it before. I'm, I don't even know if there's a manufacturer, but it's a white plastic. It's got a round base with a, a goose neck that does, that doesn't goose. Um, it's a hard plastic tube at a bent at an angle, and then just a little bit of an opening at the top, and there's an electrode in there, and it interfaces really, really nicely to the computer, and it sounded pretty darn, pretty darn good. I, I, Joe, I think I loaned it to you at one point, or got you one, and, and we both found something better yet. But something as inexpensive as that, uh, one made it up with the right kind of electronics, will do an okay job. And um, well, it, it's all kind of like what your budget has and what what your usage of the uh, microphone is. I also have the uh, uh, the A-Static, and I'm glad you mentioned that crystal. That it's a crystal uh, microphone. I um, is the uh, is the principle similar such that it's the compression of the crystals that create a variant voltage, Joe? Yes, and the piezoelectric effect, right? Okay, and correct me if I'm wrong. In the old-time telephones, carbon microphones, that was the same principle there. No, they used loose carbon um, granules on a microphone, and it formed a variable resistor. They passed DC through it, and as you spoke, it it compressed or decompressed the uh, packing of the grains to uh, change the resistance and uh, give you a an AC component out of the DC uh, input. 
even as far as modern day, um, not modern, modern day, but I mean, like, you know, like, uh, I don't know, 10 years ago when, or 15, 20 years ago, maybe when POT telephones were still in effect, the quality was pretty darn good. Was that still carbon, uh, ca- uh, carbon mics? You know, I'm not really sure. Um, could be. They lasted a long time because they were cheap and um, they'd amortized the design cost long, long ago. They just turned the crank and made more. Gosh, I remember as a kid, and not, not maybe even later than that too, but uh, taking apart the uh, the telephones, of course, and taking out, unscrewing the mouthpiece cover, and out would pop that uh, round disc-like assembly with two wires connected to it. And uh, I forgot what I would do with it, but nonetheless, it was uh, that was the construct, and it, it worked pretty darn well for as a variable resistor, as you described there. Interesting. Microphone frequency response is, is kind of an interesting aspect for uh, us in ham radio, because um, as we know, probably more so than our non-ham or non-electronics friends, we know that the intelligibility of one's voice is carried in the different frequencies and the bandwidth that is carried in your um, in the transmitted signal and in the, in the spoken voice as well. And um, as this next section here, uh, microphone frequency response describes, we have three charts. They all sort of look similar, and I'll describe it through those things. But this section references a, uh, a URL from K3DAV. And I've indicated on our, our whiteboard there that this is, a, in my opinion, a really informative. It's a short article. Um, but he goes through, and I've, and I've uh, borrowed some of his uh, words here along the lines of his descriptions, and we're going to talk through it. But it, it really puts it in good perspective as far as like what we're dealing with with, with, with ham radio. And in general, and I'm just summarizing here, um, voice energy um, are our ears when when they are young and uh, uh, before they are damaged and, and so on, um, can hear between 20 hertz and 20,000 hertz. That's kind of like the general, real rough general um, frequency range. And that's indicated there in figure A. Um, figure A shows a logarithmic res- um, a display of frequency along the bottom. Uh, from 0 to 20,000 hertz. And vertically, it shows a decibel uh, uh, attenuation levels. Uh, 0 dB is kind of like a, a standard level that uh, is quoted for normal type of listening. Plus 10 is 10 dB louder. Minus 10 is 10 dB lower. Minus 25 dB is probably down below anybody's hearing level ability to hear. There's no uh, there's no frequency curves imposed on this. The intention is to show the, um, the black area is the general area that our radios can pass uh, information, uh, the frequencies that are allowed um, to, to get through. So if you take microphone, a typical stock microphone, as shown now in figure B, and that red curve indicates the frequency response of a typical you know, run-of-the-mill, ham-fest kind of junk box, CB type of inexpensive handheld mic that you might grab. Um, that frequency response is going to be generally less than the overall ability of your radio to be transmitting those frequencies. So in this case here, the radio is shown to be able to pass frequencies. The, the audio amplification circuits and so on um, are able to handle frequencies from 100 hertz to about 3.5 kilohertz. But your microphone cannot. 
So um, that is sometimes why, in, in a case maybe like my own voice is coming through now, there's a lot of treble. There's not much. There's there's not as much bass response in my signal or in the signal that's being shown there. And um, that's not bad. It's not. It's it's not maybe the best pleasing type of sound, but it oftentimes cuts through uh, QRM and a lot is is good for communications uh, pile up, a DX uh, pile ups because your voice is uh, um, the most of the energy in your voice is concentrated in the areas that are getting through. And uh, uh, maybe to contrast that is, and let's go down to figure C. And figure C shows what you would see um, with a, what they call a studio mic. And uh, um, ultimately the red curve indicates a, a wider frequency range that the microphone is able to handle. So if you were speaking into the microphone, it would be capturing voice energy from your voice below one, uh, 100 hertz and above 3.5 kilohertz. And that same energy is getting put through the radio in that black area of the center, such that the call of the communications channel from 100 hertz to 3.5 kilohertz is containing all of you know, is containing more of your energy that's uh, that you, uh, spoken energy. And obviously, it is you know there's no surprise that it's going to be. Um, a better sound on the other side, um, assuming that, of course, the radio has the same frequency pass, that band pass uh, characteristic. And the article really explains, my last point I want to make about this is that the article really explains that microphones and speakers and such are rated in the bandwidth, and uh, um, it, it's rated at the edges where the signal rolls off. And now, again, you can, let's go to figure B. You can see that there's a, ro a rolling off of the, the frequencies in that particular um, um, curve. And the bandwidth for that microphone is very likely going to be indicated somewhere around, oh, let's see if I can interpolate here, but it's maybe on the order of uh, um, 200 hertz to 2.5 kilohertz, maybe. Uh, when in actuality, the energy at those lower, at those extremes of the response is down at minus 25 dB, and you're not going to hear that. So the effective bandwidth is significantly smaller. In this case here, probably around 500 to 2,000 hertz. So it's no wonder that your voice is going to sound tinnier and uh, um, on the on the received side because that's all the energy you're putting into it. Now there's. Uh, there are things that can be done, and we're going to get to that in a minute. I'm going to let Joe take over and, and maybe talk about bandwidth of signals, SSB, AM, FM, and things like that, um, that, that constitute the, the channel of the RF signal, ultimately, that, that's, that's going through. But there are things you can do to boost the bass, uh, boost the travel, uh, move the energy uh, up and down to suit your liking, and also to kind of fill in where it might uh, uh, be lacking. But an important thing to keep in mind is that you can't, an EQ, an equalizing um, amplifier, your bass and treble control, for example, cannot compensate for energy that's just not being produced by the microphone. As in the case of figure B, if you're looking to get a lot of bass energy, if you're looking to have a lot of bass coming through your, your system, and I don't even know if that was bassy, but nonetheless, because my microphone just is not producing um, lower, lower frequency energy, no equalization system is going to make that be significantly better at all. Um, so I think a, an underscore or a, a lesson or a moral for this part of the story is that get a microphone that's going to suit your need, and um, and then you can start uh, seeing if you can optimize some of the, uh, the low-frequency response, high-frequency response, and, and amplification in general, if that's indeed the case. Hope that
that made some sense. Uh, Joe, if it didn't, just to kind of correct me, but then if you could, uh, maybe go on into the, uh, you know, the bandwidth of the, of the signals of our different modes. Sure. Yeah, it was a good, uh, good overview, George. Kind of got the idea across. And I gave, if you look in the chat window, I gave a little hint for getting more, more bass from your voice as well. A non-electronic means of doing it. Um, it's interesting in, uh, in doing some research for this uh, this session. I was uh, checking the FCC rules and regs. Um, a lot of guys who are into AM and into something called ESSB, um, enhanced Hanko sideband, push the uh, the bandwidth of their audio up beyond two and a half or three or three and a half kilohertz um, uh, in order to uh, to make to make the voice sound more natural. Um, as it turns out, with the FCC regs, we don't have a limitation on the uh, frequency response of our uh, of our equipment. Um, it's the same as with power. Um, you're you're encouraged to not use more bandwidth than is necessary for communication. Same as you're encouraged not to use more power than is used uh, than is necessary for communication. Generally speaking, most of the um, single sideband rigs tend to um, cut off, depending on the uh, generally the filters in them, cut off somewhere uh, two and a half kilohertz or so, up to a maximum of um, uh, probably three kilohertz. The charts above show three and a half. But I, don't, I don't know that too many go to three and a half. Um, that's on the high end. On the low end, they roll off down um, at a couple hundred hertz. Problem there is uh, there are limitations on the uh, practical building of filters that will um, attenuate the uh, carrier and the opposite sidebands. Um, infinite uh, roll-off filters are not uh, not too easy to make, although these days with DSP you can. So anyway, with a single sideband, the audio tends to be restricted to um, somewhere between 2.5 and 3.5 uh, and um, kilohertz. Um, on AM, uh, things are a bit wider generally. Um, back in the, uh, the old days, there were probably 3 or 4 kilohertz um, wide at the high end, and depend, if there was enough iron, they could uh, be um, have a response down to 100 hertz or so to sound much more natural, uh, which was fairly common. And of course, an AM signal takes up uh, twice the bandwidth of a single sideband signal, so you're really spreading energy over a wide spectrum. But um, a little more power takes care of that. Just uh, anecdotally, uh, I knew several guys in the South Jersey area here who were AMers when I was getting interested in ham radio back in the 60s who got some old broadcast transmitters, and they put them on uh, 75 and 160 meters, and they had some really great sounding audio. It was really wide, and their electric bills were horrible, but uh, they did that. Uh, we have a... a um, Graph or not a graph, a table from um, NU8 NU9N, who was a proponent of ESSB, to show you um, compare uh, various bandwidths of uh, standard sing single sideband and ESSB. This is some of the stuff that um, the folks are experimenting with in order to get uh, more uh, more bandwidth and uh, better sounding audio. Uh, kind of experimental, not not widely used, but uh, uh, kind of state of the art in that stuff. And if you look at the um, www.nu8n.com site, it has a whole bunch more stuff on audio, on AM processing, and uh, other matters related to uh, to voice use um, in ham radio. Some good stuff to look at. Um, just want to also mention, I casually mentioned it, that with DSP, with rigs that use DSP, you can tailor the audio to do what you want. And I think that uh, that's some of what uh, George and Yuha are doing now with the SDR Cube. They're considering, uh, in addition to adding AM, which they've already done, they're considering tweaking the filtering in there. 
um, that's done in software to uh, possibly enhance the uh, transmit audio to get some better quality. Back to you, George. Oh, thanks, Joe. And let's toss it open for any questions. We're kind of rocking and rolling along the way here, and uh, certainly don't want to take um, take away anybody's uh, time to, for any good questions. If you've got some and you had them queued up, uh, please let us know. Okay, Charles, go ahead. Hey, I was working on uh, building a, a desert rat, and I, I came across the part about picking out a speaker. And I thought, well, geez, I'm going to listen to a lot of, you know, people's just communicating in voice and typically male. So I kind of looked for uh, curves on speakers to be uh, in that range. And I, I came across uh, what I'll post here in chat. And so I, I picked out one that kind of matched the uh, what, what you see uh, there that where it says the male voice is uh, fundamental 85 to 180 hertz and the female is like 165 to 255 typically. Anyway, I thought I'd just throw that in there. That's a really interesting point, and it's true about the voice. Um, those of us who might be hearing impaired a bit um, might find it more difficult, either either on purpose or or uh, uh, by physical limitations, to hear the female voice as clearly because of the higher frequency content it has. It doesn't seem like it's that much, but some of the females can really uh, get uh, to, the, to the higher frequencies. And I guess the degree to which you're able to tune your speaker system uh, to the kind of uh, audio that is ostensibly coming across it uh, is going to be better for you. I'm actually going to, you know, we actually have a, a little bit down down the uh, down the screen, down the whiteboard. We've got um, a mention of a, I forgot what I call it. I can't, I can't dial up, I can't move my screen while I'm speaking here, but... Um, a tuned cavity speaker. Now it happens to be ideal for CW, a single frequency, where you would uh, resonance have, speaker. Yeah, it's a resonance speaker where you would uh, adjust the speaker of uh, the tube dimensions where your speaker is located. And um, long story short, it would just be resonant at the frequency that you would like to be receiving your CW tone, which is you know the CW offset frequency in your rig. And um, that could be done for your Desert Rat. It could be done for any kind of a QRP CW rig. Uh, probably not that technique specifically wouldn't work for voice too well, I think, unless you had enough a wide enough bandwidth of that uh, tuned cavity. Um, but you're on the right path. And actually, some of the DSP speakers that we mentioned on the page, we'll get to it in a bit, uh, have the ability to provide some band pass filtering to the audio signal that would, um, in the case if it were a female voice, you'd be able to kind of tune out some of the uh, the bass um, and only have the female's higher frequencies come through. And thus, you'd be able to take out a lot of the other noise energy that might be otherwise in the channel and provide for a clearer reception. But you're on the right path. Yeah, any other questions? Uh, that was a good question. Any, anything else? Um, well, I can throw this in. I, I built it in a cigar box, and I've been experimenting with uh, the sliding lid on it, and so I slide it open a little to get it to different, uh, I guess, resonant uh, points on it. That's kind of fun. That's great. That's great. I guess um, I was madly searching for that article. Um, there were a couple of good uh, homebrewing resonant uh, cavity speakers that were done, oh gosh, years ago. I haven't seen too much of them lately, uh, but I thought I'd captured the uh, um, the homebrew project for it. It was relatively simplistic. And I have a, uh, oh gosh, I've got, a, I'm looking up on the, on the shelf here. I've got a couple of good old scotch bottles uh, container, tubular, tube 
type containers that held good scotch. I've been saving them for a, uh, a rainy day. Uh, the, the tubes, not the scotch, that's long gone. But uh, you can put a speaker in those tubes and adjust the depth of the tubes and come up with a, uh, a variable tune filter in, 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 in essence. I imagine you could also do that with a cigar box. JJ, you had a question. Oh uh, yeah, I was um, playing around recently with uh, Raspberry Pi, and uh, there was really no audio input on it. There's audio out, but no audio in. And I was just curious if anybody's using the Raspberry Pi for amateur radio applications with a USB uh, dongle or a uh, related question: Is anybody has anything higher sample rate than 44.1k? Uh, okay. Anybody have any experience uh, on that? Um, Rick, you have Rick. a little bit. I think. Go ahead. Yeah, there's a uh, an entire uh, Yahoo group devoted to using the Raspberry Pi in amateur radio applications, and I think it's called RazPi uh, for Amateurs or something like that. Uh, but it's very active. Uh, there are a lot of people, for whatever reason, uh, using the Raspberry Pi uh, for APRS applications. Uh, that seems to be the the uh, most uh, most likely one. Uh, the Raspberry Pi seems to be uh, underpowered for doing full uh, decoding of IQ signals, uh, although that's also used with the uh uh, the dongle uh, for uh, digital television, uh, not decoding that so much as distributing the uh, the signals onto uh, a local area network. Oh. Okay, um, I'm sure Joe took note of that. A little non sequitur type of question, but that's okay. And just to continue the non sequiturness, um, I guess that would be non sequiturability. Um, we have, uh, uh, Rick, you had mentioned uh, the Raspberry Pi, and last time or the time before, and that somebody had come up with such a novel, simple cookbook way of putting it together and getting it working. Um, I, I gave it a try, but the first step said something along the lines configure your Linux operating system as you would normally with all of the drivers and such, and then start doing this, 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 and this. Well, that first step was like a killer for me, so I put that piece of paper away, and I'm going to do that on a different rainy day. Anyways, getting back to the... Uh, Terry, go ahead. Yeah, in addition to the uh, Raspberry Pi group, there's a, um, the uh, Dave Cameron that uh, developed IRLP is, uh, went to the Raspberry Pi, and he now only, not, he's got a whole IRLP uh, set up based on the Raspberry Pi and a uh, audio dongle, a uh, little uh, USB dongle for sound. So there are there there are a few different apps out there using uh, the USB dongles um, uh, with their Pies. Well, thank you. Yeah, thanks a lot on that, Terry. In general, since we're on it, I guess just another moment or two, um, is there some general interest in having a session here and chat with the designers concerning the Raspberry Pi? Well, first you'll have to be able to bring up uh, Linux on it. Well, of course, one would have to do that, um, but that's that would be part of the whole thing. I would imagine. I mean, I'm I'm not. I, given the time, I'm not usually one to let technology with me. Um, so I've been keeping this off on the side until I do have the time. But uh, going through and configuring the Linux operating system and getting it set up and so on, it sounds like something I want to do. I've got the I got the pie sitting here, and if we can figure out a way to do it in a cookbook manner, then maybe even step by step here on a chat with a designer session. That's something I was uh, kind of toying with uh, with Joe about. 
Joe Jessen, go ahead. Yeah, Joe Jessen, Joe Jessen. Oh, yeah, I was going to say that I have mine, George, set up. Um, I was able to configure Linux on it, and it's, it is running. Um, again, my only issue is no audio in, but I, I was able to configure Linux, and it looks pretty good. There's at least four different distros for that, so I found the best one that works the quickest. And um, Anyhow, I'd be glad to help anybody out on that. All right, let's give that a shot. Um, we will study it, and maybe we can a uh, subset of us can get together, and um, it uh, it would be interesting just to to get through that. And if it if it make if it's ultimately simple enough to do it here, then we'll give it a shot. And if there's enough interest, please let us know if you know, offline if if the Raspberry Pi would be of interest to you as a topic item, maybe just as the start of an overview, and then maybe secondly as a uh, usage for. Uh, um, I don't know, Rick. What was that for? Um, that that was for use with a soft rock, Rick. Uh, no, don't believe so. Uh, what I should mention uh-huh. is that uh, you can go ahead uh, and get uh, one of the beautiful things about the Raspberry Pi is anybody who's got a Raspberry Pi up can do something as simple as copying the SD card, uh, sending it to you. You plug the SD card in, and you're up and running exactly the way they are. Uh, that's how I got started with the Pi, was simply to purchase uh, off eBay uh, somebody who was distributing uh, the complete uh, Raspbian distribution uh, of Linux for the Pi, uh, popped it in, and I was live and ready to go. That's good. I would like to have that information there. Maybe we can chat afterwards or you send me a link or something. I'd like to uh, know where to do that. And same too, JJ will maybe do that some some uh, sometime at the Olive Garden sessions that we have uh, uh, brainstorming together. Okay, let's continue onward. Uh, there's just a little bit more material. I do want to, the thing that was with audio that it was really interesting to me. Um, was the additional processing, the ability to modify the spectral content to do EQ on my microphone to try to balance out some of the energy to come up with some uh, better tonal, uh, deeper um, deeper lows and have a more, I can say AM-like if you, you don't know unless you've really heard AM on the on, um, ham, amateur radio AM transmissions on Superb by a lot of the, the stations. And I want to do that. So I was looking at the, I started looking at the W2IHY products, which are kind of like the deluxe um, um, products that one would use. And there are two there that are most uh, most common, which is the EQ Plus. The EQ Plus, which is um, kind of like what you might start off, well, the opinions vary, but the EQ Plus is, uh, is pictured there, is uh, compression, um, simplistic, uh, like three band, um, low, medium, high, or, you know, bass, Base and treble uh, type of uh, uh, simple equalization um, audio amp. Uh, there's a lot of features, a lot of neat features. It's kind of an expensive box. I guess it's on the order of three hundred and fifty dollars, um, and you could add to it or just use it separately. Um, the the box next to it, which is an eight band audio equalizer. So each of those slide switch uh, slide bars uh, potentiometers allows you to modify the spectrum. Um, at different points to do some of what I had suggested as far as you know, boosting the bass or giving it overall gain and reducing the treble and, and so on. So it's like a really a glorified, fancy, more granular type of tone control. And those two might be uh, um, kind of of interest to you if you also have audio types of uh, uh, interests. And right below that, there's an audio sample of EQ plus processing, a little subtitle that I've got there. And there's a link there that says listen. So if you wanted to at some point listen to um, a sample transmission, actually, that somebody did uh, while adjusting the EQ plus, 
you can actually hear the difference in tonal response uh, coming from his microphone through the transmission system. And it's it's pretty obvious, um, the improvements that, that are seen. And um, um, for lesser expensive approaches, just above that W2IHY section on the whiteboard, We've got, uh, uh, I came across a YouTube video, which has a fellow N7TFP, uh, Tyler had a YouTube where he has, uh, he demonstrated the use and benefit of a little mixer board, an eight channel, I think it's eight channel, um, I can't count it real quickly, maybe six channel. Uh, mixer board that is, um, um, allows individual control, uh, base, mid and uh, treble control and level and the ability to patch them in and can pass uh, audio from one channel to another and that patch panel up at the top of that box is really convenient for doing that and I'm not sure exactly why he would do it but his ability to take uh, an example when you listen to it the audio from um, a weather station or maybe an air traffic control station and pump that over the air on 14307 um, on his ham rig, um, not even sure of the legality of that, but nonetheless, it, uh, he has the, he, the ability to do that. And it, it's a kind of an inexpensive uh, solution that's, gosh, I don't know, it's no longer made, but an equivalent could be found probably for about 80 bucks. And uh, it's a nice little audio processing accessory if you want to start fiddling around with that. I enjoyed that uh, YouTube uh, uh, overview as I did the, uh, um, the one uh, below it from... Uh, uh, AE6LX. So that's another um, little YouTube thing, or actually a video that's posted on the W2IHY site, illustrating how um, the uh, that W2IHY audio equipment is uh, used. It's it's rather instructional, and if you're kind of thinking along those lines, it's uh, it's really a handy thing to uh, to have as a reference. So give it a shot, listening to that if you get a chance. I think you would enjoy it, and it gives an additional perspective on the different kind of control that you can give to the, your audio signal. Um, in your uh, in your rig, Joe. Do you want to kind of guide us? Oh, let's see. Is Alan here with us tonight? He's not. Oh, he is. Alan. Hey, W two A E W. I I'm sure you noticed that I I came across your um, YouTube uh, description of how you provide amplification and tonal control for your A Static D one hundred four microphone. I am going to do that very thing. I came across this I think two nights ago, and I tried like heck to find some time, but I, I'm I'm totally stressed out on this side, and uh, I'm going to try to do it in the coming couple of days. Uh, Alan, can you kind of describe for us the kind of what you did there and and how it worked out for you? Yeah, sure. Just uh, give me an audio audio check first here. Uh, sounds really good. Okay, not using this uh, preamp right now, <laughs> but um, yeah. So uh, this circuit is um, uh, basically it, it's a two-stage thing. Uh, it takes the the first stage is a kind of a impedance converter and preamp. Uh, basically, you know, the the crystal head of the D104 is a very very high impedance. Uh, so this first stage is primarily an impedance converter to take the audio signal from that high impedance uh, cartridge or element and uh, make it a nice low impedance output to drive the next stage. Uh, so that's what that first uh, stage is. Um, and then uh, down along, uh, going up to the non-inverting input of that, you'll see a little resistor divider to create a virtual ground. Um, and that's, uh, that's what just biases up the non-inverting inputs of both op amps. Uh, so it was a little bit of gain, uh, gain of about uh, uh, 10x or 20 dB uh, on the uh, that preamp or the impedance converter. Uh, 
Then the following stage is just a very uh, typical, classic, um, active base and trouble control circuit uh, where you can adjust the two pots to adjust the, uh, the base and trouble. And I fiddled with the values, uh, the R's and C's, to kind of get the crossover uh, points such that uh, they leave kind of the mid-range alone and they enhance or cut the base and they enhance or cut the treble. Uh, you, below the schematic, you'll see a graph of kind of the uh, the limits that uh, you can adjust it through. And then uh, the rest of it is just, uh, you know, a little bit of RFD coupling, and, uh, and I power the whole thing up from the uh, the 8 volts that comes through the microphone cable on my, uh, my Kenwood transceiver. Um, so that's really what it does. Um, the choice of the op-amp isn't super critical. I just happen to have a couple of these OP-296s laying around, but uh, any decent low-noise single supply op-amp, or at least one that can operate at 5 volts, uh, is fine. Um, it would work, uh, work would work well here. So um, anyway, take a look at the video for some more details. I, I go through uh, a demonstration of how it works and show some frequency responses uh, on the uh, on the oscilloscope by uh, sending a swept audio signal through it. So, uh, but I've uh, had this thing in the base of two D104s that I use for the last uh, 12 years or so, and uh, it's been working great. So anyway, hope. Uh, Get a chance to look at the video and uh, and maybe build one yourself. Uh, back to you. Uh, uh, see who's 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 hosting tonight. <laughs> George, 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 George. Back to you, George. <laughs> thank you, Alan. Good uh, good overview and thank you again for that uh, that YouTube. Uh, I guess you did it several years ago, but nonetheless, um, it's 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 a lot of people have this microphone. And I pulled the bass off of my mic and looked at it, and indeed, it is the original microphone, uh, the, the original amplifier, as you described in your. Uh, in your video, and what I like best about this is the uh, the degree of of adjustability. Much as your curves show the red, green, and blue um, audio response curves, and that kind of flexibility, and the dem that you also demonstrated there on the video, was uh, kind of just what just what I'm after, at least with my particular setup. Uh, Joe, do you want to lead us into the uh, quickly into the audio uh, output section? My intention. Um, with this was essentially, I mean, audio is coming out as audio coming out. I wanted to kind of show some of the um, old boat anchors, and there really wasn't too much, um, uh, too, too much inventiveness, I guess is the best way to say it, as far as a box with a speaker in it. And some of uh, some of us might re recognize some of those speakers and the manufacturers of those. But um, the, the thing that maybe you could comment on, Joe, um, was is the, uh, the little speakers toward the end. The USB speakers, I think you have a couple of those, just as I do, and I was surprised by their quality. Um, there's also that resonant uh, speaker, but also uh, the DSP speaker for the BHI. I don't know if it's pronounced BHI or whatever, but the BHI speaker and uh, another one from West Mountain. It's, they're pretty popular these days, and as you mentioned with the, the FT817 uh, crowd as well, right, Joe? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, it is kind of the, um, the opposite uh and the audio stream that we've been talking about, but it's uh, it's equally important. Uh, and everybody, well, it's it's like uh, opinions. Everybody has one. Um, anyway, uh, many of us use headphones. And there's a very very good uh, Heil headphone shown here in the uh, uh, in the whiteboard. Uh, excellent uh, quality stereo headphone, which is not the only uh, headphone in the world. Obviously, um, many use uh, earbuds or or. Uh, Headphones that are tailored to uh, audio use, um, 
which can get you in trouble at times, particularly if you have a rig where there's a lot of hum or noise at the low, low end of the frequency band, or if there's hiss at the high end of the frequency band. So you, you just have to be a little careful in what you're doing. Um, there is kind of a memory lane thing with some of the speakers here. I can see some Helicrafter speakers. Looks like a uh, Drake speaker. Uh, clicking on this national uh, national speaker, Drake uh, 2A or 2B speaker, uh, all of which are uh, very good speakers for ham radio. Um, speakers for ham radio tend to be a little different than the ones for hi-fi. Um, we don't want to go down to 10 hertz. We don't want to uh, accentuate all the noise and the uh, the bleeps and the bloops, the low and the audio um, frequency range. AC so we tend AC not to have... Uh, say again? I'm sorry, the AC hum. We can avoid that too. That's good. Hmm, indeed. Uh, yeah, uh, anyway, they tend to have, uh, don't have big baffles that uh, give you too much low frequency response um, and try to tailor things above 100 hertz or so up into uh, several kilohertz. But as George pointed out, these days, um, there are a lot of USB-powered speakers. Uh, some pictures shown things here. Very small cylindrical speakers that have excellent frequency response. They have some special construction to these speaker cones and to some uh, uh, ducting, some... Uh, semi-resonant ducting inside the speaker that uh, gives you a very, very good response beyond what you'd expect in a small speaker like that. Um, range 20 bucks on up, but if you pay uh, 30 or 40 bucks, you can get a really good one. Very, very handy for uh, portable, portable ham use. And uh, as George pointed out, there are resonant speakers also. I put a link in the uh, um, yeah, I put a link in the uh, chat window for um, KD1JV had a, a resonant speaker um, design that he uh, he used for CW. Um, DSP speakers are very very popular also because um, in the same manner as you want to tailor uh, transmit audio, it's nice to be able to tailor the receive audio to uh, to get rid of noise spikes, to uh, put notches in the uh, spectrum, and to shape the uh, the spectrum you're listening to. So it's handy to to integrate a, uh, a digital signal processor with some controls on there in a speaker uh, uh, speaker box. Have a single unit do it. We have some examples of them here, and uh, some some uh, project articles. Uh, it's not a speaker, but it is a DSP that's very handy for uh, doing this sort of thing. New England QRP came out with the uh, NESCAF uh, switched uh, capacitor audio filter NESCAF. Uh, kit back some years ago, and uh, they they do uh, rerun it periodically. Comes as a printed circuit board; you can mount it as you want. But it's a it's a handy, inexpensive way of having a uh, not a, a digital signal processing, but an audio processing uh, uh, receiver, receive audio uh, uh, processor to uh, to tweak the audio to uh, roll off highs or lows uh, as you wish. Um, Tweaker's delight, kind of the uh, analog to the uh, equalizer that George is talking about on the uh, transmit end. Um, back to you, George. I was looking for, I was doing a quick search on N-E-S-C-A-F, and all I could, all I could come up with was Nescafe. Um, so I guess uh, I'll have to search a little bit more for that one. Don't need any coffee at this particular moment. Um, and that <clears throat> that DSP speaker project at the um, end is, I'm sorry, say again? Uh-oh, Okay. So the, the speaker project at the end is something you might want to give it a try. It's not as formidable as maybe it might seem. It's it's from QST, which first of all means it's, it's sort of an easier uh, type of uh, construction project. And it's easier because uh, they use the actual the BHI um, DSP module. So the whole idea is you get the BHI module, and the link is there. I'm not sure if it's still available. 
um, or what the price is, but you get that module in there and it's a DSP filter, kind of a fancier, a much fancier version of the SCAF filter that, uh, that Joe was talking about, an actual processing filter. And you just um, kind of build it into a case with some level control um, buttons and a, uh, and a speaker and the, and the guy did a nice job and it's a kind of a fun project you could do and I've uh, I've used the DSP audio speaker in one form or another for years and years and years. Um, and uh, gosh, I had it. Oh, there it is. I use a Time Wave now. Um, it's a Time Wave, and it allows me to set upper um, high pass and low pass uh, knees or frequency points, and band pass and amplification and nice. So you can really, as Joe said, if you're kind of settling into a QSO, be it with CW or phone, um, you can tailor and you can tailor the incoming audio and get rid of a lot of the. Um, other stuff that's on the channel and uh, make the your QSO a little bit more enjoyable. Um, let's proceed quickly over into the... Is there somebody have a question? I just have another comment, George. Uh, today's DSP uh, radio systems, of course, have often very elab elaborate audio shaping, both for input and output. I've got a Flex 1500, and uh, it's got a whole cluster of controls that are devoted specifically to uh, shaping uh, the audio, both uh, coming in and going out. Oh, you are absolutely right. And uh, it's the same, the same end goal. Um, even not so new. Um, gosh, I've got uh, it's broken now. It's been sitting here on the on the floor for years. But uh, a 756, an ICOM 756. Uh, not the pro and, and not the color display and, and whatnot, but um, it has some really nice filters for peaking, um, really good for in kind of peaking an audio frequency where a CW tone is coming in, and then um, producing a very um, narrow um, bandpass for that signal too, and being able to move it left and right and being able to move the uh, low end and the high end independently of a bandpass filter. So you're right, those, those are really good capabilities. Also, in the more modern rigs, too, there are um, IF controls. The DSP is able to operate at the IF frequency of the radio and move the filtering at the IF in a similar manner, but much more effectively being able to block out the interfering signals and allow you to have a clearer, crisper type of uh, transmission. Good point. Thanks for bringing that up. Okay, um, any any other comments before we transition out of audio? We're going to spend maybe just five minutes on uh, uh, the Arduino update and uh, then maybe five minutes on the cool product of the month. But before we leave audio, any other questions or comments on your own experience? Yeah, Ray, go ahead. Uh, hello, George, and good evening to the rest of the group. Um, <clears throat> just a comment, uh, along with the lines of what Rick said, uh, the now uh, extremely popular KX3 transceiver uh, uh, tailors both receiving and transmitted audio to your heart's content. Uh, so uh, that's a feature added in that rig. And the other comment I'd uh, want to suggest for people that like to experiment with uh, tailoring their audio is to remember uh, something that I did professionally. And um, you can do often more effective work by cutting frequencies rather than boosting others. Uh, uh, cut what you don't want and bring the gain up uh, to compensate if you've lost some overall level. Uh, and then you can get a much generally smoother response uh, and uh, fitting electronically uh, better between the voltage rails of whatever electronics you have in your equipment. Uh, uh, usually works better to do it that way. And of course, with today's DSP uh, uh, rigs, with so much uh, processing done uh, in algorithms, it's uh, tremendous. I mean, compression as well as equalization. 
Oh, you are so right. And I forgot that you were a, I forgot if it was exactly a, a radio broadcast engineer and a, and a TV station, was it? Yeah, I was CBS TV in New York. Uh, I was a technical supervisor in the audio department. Uh, there you go. Yeah, you often share your stories uh, at our um, in-person New Jersey QRP meetings uh, during uh, each month. And uh, I forgot that I could have uh, really relied on you for some of the con- content and conversation here, Ray. My apologies for that oversight. And um, our good club friend, no longer with us, but a marvelous friend over the years, uh, Tom Feeney, W8KOX, was also a radio broadcast engineer. Um, I'm not sure if he's a supervisor. I think he managed uh, the, a radio station, a TV station there. And I used to have some marvelous conversations with Tom. Oh, they were, uh, he, he was a wealth of information. And that's the kind of engineer from, from those days that really carried over well to, uh, well, I mean, into the ham, uh, the hams that have elaborate um, radio, uh, ham radio stations on AM, I think because of their familiarity over the years with the different, Technology and techniques for high-power broadcasting and audio quality, uh, much as yours is, Ray. So thanks for pointing that out. Um, Any other comments before we transition out of uh, audio? Okay, nothing heard. Frank, you've been uh, you've been the most diligent out of out of us, and I really thank you for that, um, for helping us uh, kind of move the um, at least the the XB portion of our experiments uh, forward. Just as a brief recap for everybody, um, we had been experimenting with the Arduino in a number of past episodes and have evolved a what we've called a precision Arduino clock, um, kind of a standard clock, if you will, with LED digits uh, that has the ability to be synchronized with an external signal that we hams are quite familiar with, and that's WWV or CHU. And we have a series of phases of, of improvement that uh, or evolution that we're going to have on that project. And we have the ability right now to have that clock um, be, uh, the clock information be transmitted remotely or transmitted to a remote clock display unit. So we have a base station, if you will, an Arduino base station that keeps track of the time. And we utilize the XB radio modules. Um, and we've talked about that in a couple of episodes in the past. And our intention is to take that, uh, uh, not just the clock information, but other information in and around the shack with different XB modules and have it all be interchanged, uh, information going back and forth and maybe coordinated by a base station. And to do, to do that, we need to transition the project from using the Series 1 XB modules to a slightly, um, well, it's a different, I'm not sure if it's improved, but a slightly different technology of the XB Series 2 modules in order to get multi-point communications, which is the essence of a mesh network. So, Frank, uh, can you comment real quickly here on, I think, in, in a nutshell, what you've done is you've updated at least two of our three experiments uh, that use the Series 1 modules to now using Series 2. And what you've done is replicated the information here and some of the photos and configuration that was uh, that's necessary for those Series 2 XB modules? Sure. Uh, as, as you mentioned, the first two experiments from prior uh, Chat with the Designers episodes uh, went ahead and updated those for use with the Series 2 module now. As uh, folks who attended the uh, XB uh, session would remember, the Series 2 module runs a a true Zigbee stack. And there's a few things that we need to know that are important about a Zigbee network, and, and those are right up top here on the whiteboard. And that is that every Zigbee network must have one and only one coordinator that handles the management of the network. And then there's two types of end nodes that we're going to deal with. One is a router. Um, those nodes 
nodes will relay traffic from third-party nodes. Um, because they're relaying, the power usage is higher, and you would generally reserve this for something with 24-7 uh, line power. And then the final node would be an end device. And these are a little less power hungry, so these are good for battery use. And to uh, put this in perspective of our experiments here, the coordinator might be the clock itself, or maybe it would be a display that would come later on in, in this series of projects. And uh, something for an end device would, would be like the remote temperature sending node. We might want to put that outside or in another room. And we don't want to have to plug that into the wall. So that's a good application for an end device. And as you scroll down through the experiment notes here, you'll see that each type of node has a different version of firmware that would be loaded onto the module. Uh, I think that sums it up at a high level. Let's see if there's any questions. Has anybody um, been able to be following the project a little bit more? I know, and I forgot the uh, I forgot the person name. Uh, he was he had commented on the our um, our Yahoo group email site um, that he had some problems, but he resolved it as did I. And uh, has anybody else uh, been able to take the project any further? Okay, then. Well, it's probably good reference then when you do. Um, we are quickly coming to the point where we're going to have a functional product, if you will, that'll probably get more uh, people of an, uh, interest in it. So if you hadn't been able to or didn't want to follow along with the experimentation, uh, we'll have the final product that will we'll terminate this uh, this uh, series, the short series of uh, sequences of episodes in uh, with a, a pretty nifty uh, remote clock that also a base station that collects other information uh, remotely as well. So Frank, thanks a lot for your effort in, in doing that and uh, great material that you supplied there in the, in the photos and, and such. Appreciate that. Especially, of course, your, your uh, the sketches. The software is able to be loaded onto the Series 2 modules and used right away. Um, Joe, do you want to kind of explain a bit of the... Uh, um, a cool product of the month that you and I chose this time, and, and we can chat for just a few minutes about that. Sure. Uh, thank you. Yeah, it is, uh, it is a neat little gadget um, and uh, interesting, uh, interesting tie kind of the Arduinos, too. It uses an Atmega um, chip in it. Um, the project is called the uh, Exob Portable. It's a product from uh, Gabotronics, which George mentioned earlier, they originally came up came out with a little gadget that was a little um, one inch uh, graphics display um, oscilloscope with a microprocessor on there that ran the oscilloscope and they keep expanding the capabilities of the darn thing to the point where um, in addition to having this oscilloscope display run by the micro uh, they put it in a case they have a number of other functions it's a um, I'll just look at some of the ones on the list here it's a mixed signal oscilloscope uh, can look at uh, simultaneous analog and digital signals multi multi uh, channel oscilloscope can be used as an XY oscilloscope to get look at Lissajou patterns or to uh, compare timing. It can also operate as a meter to measure uh, average peak-to-peak -peak or indeed uh, frequency counter outputs. Uh, and in addition, it's um, a low-frequency spectrum analyzer. It does an FFT on input signals. It can tell you the uh, spectral content and plot it on this little uh, little display. And not to be outdone, it also has a uh, curve tracer function 
where you can uh, look at uh, semiconductor devices. I believe it's set up now for uh, diodes. You can sweep them and look at the uh, uh, voltage and current characteristics of the diode. And the final function, which is really cool, it also has a built-in uh, arbitrary function generator. You can generate um, sine waves, square waves, uh, triangle waves, sawtooth waves, and other waveforms that uh, you provide logic for. All in one little package. It's a little handheld device. It goes for about 100 bucks. I have one of the original oscilloscopes. I've actually bought two of them with thoughts of having it, um, incorporating it into another project to have a display in there. But um, this is a really cool gadget. There is a schematic. You can see what's in there. I don't know that they provide the firmware. But for 100 bucks, you can get a handy little gadget where you've got a whole, um, whole test bench, basically. Um, low end, not really... Uh, uh, traceable to uh, National Bureau of Standards or National Institute of Standards and Technology, but a very handy uh, portable device for some quick checks. Uh, you could probably even do some frequency sweeps on uh, your audio equipment using this little gadget. Um, George and I are both going to buy one, and uh, we'll probably give you an update on uh, on what we think of it and some of the uses uh, in a future segment. Back to you, George. Thank you, George. Indeed, Joe. Um, and I think, I thought it was open source. So that means that one would have an ability to reprogram that device to do other stuff. And um, even if not, one would be able to reprogram that device to do other stuff. Looks a little bit tougher without having some of the built-in drivers and so on. But uh, yes, somebody have some other insights? Uh, my question was, is it a larger display or is it that really tiny display? I'm have, I have a hard time seeing my – I also bought two and I have a hard time seeing it. <laughs> Yeah, I think this display is bigger than the one. They've got that chart there that shows 2. that. 2.4 inches. The old one was 1 inch. This is 2.42 inches. Beautiful. Did they have stock on them, uh, Joe? Uh, come again, Joe? Is there stock available on those? I'm uh, not sure. Yeah, not sure. I just saw the announcement. Okay, George says there is. Thank you. By the yeah. way, this also, I believe, may have been one of the um, uh, Kickstarter projects. I don't know if Gabotronics started that way, but I think the latest thing is the product of one of the uh, Kickstarter projects to get their uh, get their upfront funding to get it going. Yeah, it is. And um, I think they're continuing on with the next one that's off on the right-hand column, the X-Minilab X Portable. Um, yeah, the screen on this one is just 1.3 inches, not 2.4. The 2.4, I think, is for the X-Lab Mini, which isn't here yet. Um, but nonetheless, it is a bit bigger, you know, some 50% bigger, almost 50% bigger than um, the one JJ said he wasn't able to see too well, which is understandable. The small small displays are, are tougher. This one's a little bit bigger. Okay, so um, um, somebody have a comment there? Terry, go ahead. Yeah, hey, um, I bought a couple of those as well when, uh, when they first came out in January of 2011 or something like that. And I had the idea, I was heavy into soft rocks at the time, and I talked to Gabriel about, he, you could do an F, he was building FFTs into it, so I told him, asked him if he could do an FFT on A and B input, so you could put I and Q into it, and he was too busy. And then about maybe a, nine months, a year ago, he sent me an email saying he had gotten around to building it or putting it in the code, and can I try it out? And I just haven't ever gotten to the back to where I could load the um, load the little AT Mega chip again. I never uh, reached critical mass on doing that. So theoretically, it has it can do it can do a little um, um, IQ display for like soft rocks and things. Yeah, probably could. 
Um, it's, 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 it operates at uh, audio. We're dealing with the audio signals, uh, baseband signals, and doesn't even have to really do FFT. Um, all you need to do is shift one of the signals 90 degrees, and you've got yourself your, um, oh, shucks. What's the name of that filter? 90-degree filter. Or, uh, a 90-degree filter is a uh, starts with an H. Terry? Hilbert transform. Hilbert. That's it. Thank you, Joe. Good job. So all you need is that shift of 90 degrees and the ability to kind of control that uh, in a granular sense, and you got yourself your SSB decoding. So, um, yeah, that would probably be a, a cool way to do it. You can display the actual, uh, uh, have a nice display on there, too. Good thought. Okay, so that's our that's our little find for the week. If uh, um, if you wanted to get that or get, uh, hope, hopefully they'll have enough based on the interest that we're maybe generating here. I want to get mine in and play around with it and see what else we might be able to do with it. If you come across something else that you might be uh, uh, find of interest in um, in the coming weeks or whatever, let us know. Maybe we can talk about it here. We can experiment with it and uh, add it to our list of cool products of the month. So, um uh, that's about it for tonight. Uh, let me just wrap up really quickly is that, you know, we've talked about audio, both input, output, conditioning, processing, frequency uh, um, equalization, tone control, that is, uh, different products that are available, a lot in the area of microphones, which has always been a mystery to me. I just kind of used whatever I had. When I found something that worked, I kept it um, until I really understood a little bit better of the under uh, that that one layer deep of the onion, as I explained, um, it, it makes a lot more sense then, and I can make more intelligent decisions when choosing and mixing and matching my my equipment here. So, um, uh, and then we did a little bit of an update on the uh, the XP and uh, that project, and that'll be coming to a close at some time in the future. So I hope everybody kind of enjoyed uh, the program here tonight. And um, again, if uh, you did, let us know. Let us know what you'd like to be hearing about or maybe focusing on in, in the future. I had a little bit of interest here in the Pi, the Raspberry Pi. We'll see if we can make that uh, an intelligible enough conversation to have here on Chat with the Designers. If you didn't like some aspect of the program, we're all ears for that too. No problems at all. Let us know. Always looking to make it uh, make it better. We had somebody that uh, wanted to get back into more of the Analyze This that's always been a popular series. So if we can come up with a circuit that would be interesting to analyze on, um, in a group session here, that would be a, a pretty interesting thing. And we can do that too. So, uh, Joe, any final comments before we wrap her up? No, I don't think uh, really, George. It was a little um, little off our usual uh, thing here, going with audio. I think uh, adds a little interest. I know um, even in doing the research here, I've learned quite a bit, some things that I should have known, but uh, hope that uh, you all got something out of it. And as with all of our sessions, check out the whiteboard. Check the links there. There's a wealth of information that um, you'd spend a lot of time trying to dig up on your own. So uh, bookmark it and uh, use what we've provided. Uh, I think you'll like it. Indeed. Indeed. Thanks, Joe. Oh, somebody else had a comment. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, Rick again. Uh, this is totally off the wall, off the subject, but I was very curious. I noticed that Dayton, the 10 Tech, has introduced a new receiver, which seems to maybe have DSC capabilities of some sort, and which is advertised to be open source hardware. Uh, and I wondered if anybody had uh, any leads on any further information on that. I don't. I don't know that it's DSP. Yeah, I had yeah. heard I had heard a little bit of information about that too, and I just sort of forecasted. But but I'm not uh, um, I, I'm I can't comment any further without knowing really what's there. I guess it is a receiver. It's um, what 199 dollars uh, was that uh, the the price on it? And um, I thought it was a transmitter too, so it's receiver only. Yeah. 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 
it's a transceiver, but I think it's I think uh, the control of it is um, there's a micro in there, but I think it's only for controlling a DDS and transmit receive. It also and the um, uh, what do you call it, rotary encoder for tuning does not come with a frequency display, and they encourage somebody some uh, second party to come up with a frequency display to integrate into it. Yeah, and I think it only does either 40 meters or 20 meters. Um, the uh, QRP frequencies, unless you open, unless you uh, reprogram it, it does use the uh, Digilent slash uh, microchip version of the Uno, uh, the Uno Mac uh, Uno 32, I think it is, or something like that, Chip Kit 32, and um, it has that. That's kind of a neat board because it has a lot more I/O, and it's an 80 megahertz processor as opposed to the 16 megahertz processor on the Arduino. So it looks like it's got a little bit more more sophisticated uh, control, but I had also seen some emails that the chip kit only did the um, only did control. It didn't do any actual um, audio processing or anything. So it's essentially a, a, a conventional transceiver with uh, a, a computer-controlled uh, user interface. Uh, yeah, marginally a computer-controlled marginal user interface, as Joe sort of implied. All right, so maybe we'll hear more about that. Is, uh, speaking of which, is there any other Dayton information that uh, announcements, um, um, new products, uh, new things, whatever? I didn't see a whole lot of new product type of stuff out there. Um, I got the paperwork in front of me for that uh, new Tentech, and it's basically as has been said. I mean, if you want to change bands, I guess you got to open it up, uh, change jumpers. Um, Oh, it's a very tiny rig, um, but uh, looks like it could be interesting, something to play with. And you're right, George, it is $199.99. Uh, I didn't get to see the 10 Tech presentation at uh, FDIM because I was man at the table for Archie, but uh, uh, I was sitting next to uh, 10 Tech afterwards and got to talk to him a little bit. Uh, I mean, they, they still have some work to do on the, the case and stuff for it. There was no way of uh, plugging in your computer to it uh, without taking the cover off, so... Uh, it, it's got some work in there projecting uh, a, sometime in July uh, date to have it available. All righty. Thanks, everybody, for that information. We'll close down uh, chat with designers now and return the frequency to normal amateur use, as they say, sort of. So thank you, everybody. This is uh, George, N2APB, and Joe, N2CX, saying 73 all, and see you next time on Chat with the Designers.